This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, you are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm with you as always. I'm pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Virginia, and I am joined as always by Carl Truman, who is professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Now, Carl, uh, I I assume that you know this. It is Pride Month, this being June, uh, which means that it's basically no different from any other month over the last five years or so, right? Um, other I am than the wearing fact- a, I'm wearing a multicolored shirt, by <laughs> I, the way, you know, I wasn't going to say I a word about that. realized what I've done here. I, I'm, I'm going intentionally monochrome every day of, of the month of, of June, but it, it is interesting because to call it pride month, I don't know how it differentiate, how, how it, how it's different substantially from any other month of the year, the media, uh, the entertainment industry, the corporate world are especially awash. Uh, in rainbows, though, I suppose you could say, um, and all things uh, LGBTQ plus plus plus. Um, now you have um, uh, the children's programs, various children's programs like like Blues Clues, a, a program that my kids watched when they were little kids when it was a fairly new program. Uh, now has um, this animated song they've presented on a video with an animate being led by an animated um, uh, drag queen. And it's a parade representing every conceivable kind of quote unquote family, along with polyamory. I mean, you name it uh, animated for uh, for children to watch. Um, And so we have this kind of constant in your face exposure to uh, the propaganda of this new moral revolution, um, the gender rebellion, et cetera, of course, going to our youngest kids. And it's um, it is a constant drumbeat, a constant in your face now anymore you can't it, it it's it's hard to spot the commercials advertising various products from insurance to cars to shampoo that don't feature at least one of these alternative lifestyle arrangements if we can put it that way um, if you were an alien coming into the United States and just watching our advertising you would guess that around 35 to 40 percent of the population were homosexual or, or transgendered or something along those lines. And I I think this has a a lot of Christians or or people who embrace a traditional morality um, flummoxed in in terms of the fact that the efforts are so uh, uh, relentless and in some cases very uh, almost militant in their tone. And my suggestion is that it it represents a kind of effort at self-persuasion. In other words, um, I, I don't take to the streets to demand that people approve of my Presbyterianism because I don't care if they don't approve of my Presbyterianism. I don't I don't go to the streets to demand that people give me hearty approval 
um, over the fact that um, I live in the state of Virginia because I don't I don't care if they don't approve of the fact that I live in Virginia. But I think what we have with the the moral revolutionaries and the gender revolutionaries is a public display of of self persuasion. In other words, when you know that you don't have the benediction or the blessing of God, you demand that you get it from man. And, and, and here's where I want to go with this, Carl. In that statement that I just said, underlying that, I think, is a nod towards both general revelation or natural revelation and natural law. Um, to say that when you know that you don't have the blessing of God, let's say in a particularly chosen sinful lifestyle, then you demand to get it. Uh, from mankind, and that this is at least in part what energizes the nonstop drumbeat and and call. You know, we know we're no longer being told to tolerate homosexuality and transgenderism and these kinds of things. It, it, what's being demanded of us is to join into is to join in the celebration. And again, I say that because um, I, I think in order to answer this, we need to in, at least in part draw from the resources of the Protestant tradition, which gained it from the earlier church tradition of not only accessing categories of natural revelation, but also natural law. Now, natural revelation is a little bit easier, I think, for a lot of Protestants to get their minds around. Natural law can be a little bit trickier. Uh, so, so natural revelation, we would say, you know, you go to Romans 1, you're able to look at creation, you can discern that God is, et cetera. Natural law, though, differs a little bit. And I wonder if you would just unpack that a little bit, first of all, because I want to return to the issue of how we develop a, a persuasive apologetic, at least within the church among our own, based both in scripture and in natural revelation and natural law categories. But I think most Protestants don't understand natural law. And in just a moment, I want to ask you why it's been met with some objections. But first of all, just kind of give our folks a, a little bit of a description and explanation of what we mean when we say natural law, and because natural revelation and natural law are two related but different things. Yeah, natural law is really the, the teaching, the church is teaching that the world is, is more than the stuff of which it is made, mm -hmm. that the world possesses in itself a, a moral structure, that human beings are designed to flourish in some ways and not to flourish in others. Most obviously, I guess, would be uh, the realm of sexual morality, mm -hmm. that human beings, uh, our bodies are designed to fit together in certain ways to achieve certain ends that go beyond the, the mere immediate satisfaction of the individual, and that our understanding of sex and sexuality needs to be set in that context. We see that in Genesis, where you know, the two right. shall become one flesh. Uh, Adam and Eve are created with a specific end, mm. and that end, uh, that ultimate end is to shape their behavior. It's to shape how they relate to each other and shape how they relate to the environment around them. So there's a sense in which one could say natural law is, is simply the uh, looking at the way the world is through a moral lens. You know, we know that uh, if I climb up to the top of the Empire State Building and jump off, I'm going to plunge to my death. I'm not going to flourish. Mm. There is a physical law that uh, requires, if you like, that I die at that point. Yeah. Well, it's the same with uh, sexual morality. If, if human beings engage in sex in some ways, 
they will flourish, and if they engage in it in other ways, uh, they will not flourish, and they will find that uh, their bodies and indeed the societies in which they operate come under huge stress, strain, and even destruction. So right. natural law is really, uh, if you like, it's that element of, of, uh, of general revelation or mm -hmm. natural revelation that we would say touches on matters of, of morality yes. and ethics. Right. And in that way, it, it becomes a means also by which God restrains uh, sin in the world as well. It's, it, it is, in a sense, an expression of God's grace and his goodness, because as we look at, for instance, Romans chapter two, where Paul says that, uh, you know, the Gentiles who don't have the law um, end up obeying the law because God has written it on their hearts. Now, he hasn't written it on their hearts. You know, Paul is using that nomenclature in a different way than we would say in a salvific sense, you know, when, when God in the new covenant writes his law upon our hearts. But, but in this general, what we would say natural law sense, people who've never heard the Ten Commandments have an innate understanding given to them by God that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that idolatry even is wrong, even if they've cloaked that knowledge in, in layers of, of self-deception. Nevertheless, there are things, and in, in cases that you brought up, there are things in our bodies that, that God has written that tell us this works, but this doesn't work. This is good for life, and these other things are really bad for life. And that's where you have language like things you can't not know come out of natural law thinking. I know Jay Bujashevsky out of University of Texas, um, who's a, a natural law uh, philosopher, has a book under that title, what, what, what We Can't Not Know. And it's, all, it's a defense of natural law that God has written certain things that we can't not know on the human conscience. And again, in this way, um, you know, I, I want my neighbor who, who these are things that you don't have to be a Christian to understand. In other words, you don't actually even have to read the Bible to know certain things because they've been written by God upon the heart of man. Yeah. I mean, think of it, think of the abortion debate and the impact that sonograms have had Exactly. You know, when, when it's just a swelling in the woman's stomach, when yeah. that's all you can see, it's, you know, it's just a swelling in the woman's stomach. But right. once sonograms arrived and people were able to see, well, actually what's in the womb mm -hmm. looks like a person, that has an impact. So exactly. people immediately start to develop an empathy. And I would say that's part of how human beings are structured. Yes. We're designed to have empathy for other human beings such that not everybody does, but we have mm -hmm. words for those who don't have empathy, such as psychopath and sociopath. Yes. And they are not good words. And they right. reflect the fact that instinctively, we know that mothers should care for their children. Instinctively, we know that husbands should care for their wives. And when these things don't happen, we have pejorative words that, that mm. reflect that. Even if we can't offer a detailed, foundational, ethical defense of why a mother should care for her right. child, we instinctively know it. And exactly. that, I would say, is part of the natural law written on the heart of, of human beings. Yeah. Now, Carl, most of what we've said here, any thoughtful Protestant, is going to agree with that. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll read Romans chapter one, they'll read Romans chapter two, they'll hear these explanations and go, well, yeah, that makes entire sense, not only from the scriptures, but also from what we, we can observe. Nevertheless, natural law particularly has been criticized a lot, particularly in, in the 19th and 20th centuries um, by some prominent theologians, some not especially orthodox, others that we would consider orthodox and even reformed theologians, have a, 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 a very tense relationship with natural 
law. And, and it ended up falling out of favor. I mean, I, I, I never heard those terms growing up in church. I, 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 the only real references I dealt with natural law in seminary was when we were studying Karl Barth and learning the fact that he did not like natural law theory at all. So why is it for so long? Why did it fall out of favor? I mean, I, I think we're getting glimpses mm. of particularly reformed theologians going, no, 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 no. There's, there's good biblical treasure here we need to mine, but that's just recent. For the most part over the last 100 years, Protestant theologians have not liked natural law theory. What's that about? Yeah, it's an interesting question, because if you go back to the Reformation, it's very clear that that all of the prominent reformers, even Martin Luther, mm-hmm. has gives a significant place to to natural law kind right. of thinking. Thomas I mean, Hooker, the uh, uh, Anglican um, yeah, theologian, and, yep. you know, in even Luther with his polemics against Aristotle, and many would look back to Aristotle only uses the term mm-hmm. natural law, but many would look back to Aristotle as being an influence on the later natural law tradition. Mm-hmm. Even for all of his polemics against Aristotle, though we find in Luther, Luther's concern with Aristotle really is he's he's training Christians to think they can justify themselves by works. Right. It's not the issue of of natural law that is particularly a uh, hot topic for Luther. What happens, though, in, I think in the 19th century is, uh, particularly in the Dutch tradition, deep suspicion develops of nat- uh, relative to natural law. And we find that reaching its most acute sort of manifestation in the 20th century in the, the thinking of Cornelius Van Til and, mm-hmm. and his disciples. And I think the Van Tilians are motivated by, by something good, if you like, at this point. They are concerned that uh, a doctrine of natural law will lead to a sort of autonomy of human reason, right. independent of revelation. And that's a good concern to have. Yeah. But I think it leads them to, or, or some of them, to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. Uh, the other strand is is that which we find in so-called neo-orthodoxy or, or Karl, particularly the, the Barth strand, right. the Karl Barth strand of neo-orthodoxy. Barth's background is very much the rise of Adolf Hitler, and I think in Barth's mind, there is a connection between the rise of Adolf Hitler, the rise of German nationalism, certain strands of romanticism and uh, a preoccupation with nature as a manifestation of the divine. And in order to, to combat that, Barth asserts this sort of radical revelational theology over against yeah. that, which denies the usefulness of, of natural law. Interesting fact, of course, is that Barth is, is famous on this issue for disagreeing with Emil Brunner, mm-hmm. who in the, was, was also part of the, the rise of New mm-hmm. Orthodoxy. And Brunner asserted a form of natural theology. Uh, interestingly enough, Brunner was the only one of the two who consistently opposed political totalitarianism. As late as 1947-1948, Barth is referring to Stalin as a man of integrity. So for all of Barth's, I think, legitimate concerns about uh, a rampant natural theology and leading to Adolf Hitler, he was somewhat inconsistent. Uh, His own revelational theology uh, did not enable him to spot the rather obvious problems with Joseph Mm -hmm. Stalin. I mean, we're not talking about the Stalin of the 20s. We're talking about the Stalin of the 1940s after the great show trials of the 1930s. The mask was off at that point. Yeah. So I think that for that reason, you have those two impulses, we might say, on the left and the right of reform theology Mm -hmm. militating against uh, natural law for understandable reasons, sure. but actually leading to a a fundamental and I would say most unfortunate break with the tradition. 
Right. And, and where that brings us up to date with our, our current cultural situation and, and the, the new moral revolution, um, the, 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 the gender radicalism that's going on is as you deal on a regular basis with university students, as I deal on a regular basis with, with a church of people of, of all ages, um, you and I are both engaged some of our time with offering an adequate apologetic for what the scriptures teach about human identity and the telos or the purpose, the goal of sexuality and marriage and gender. And one of the things that anybody who's been teaching in Christian um, institutions um, or, or churches can testify is that that's become a lot more difficult, a lot more challenging because um, we now have a generation for which certain arguments just don't seem to to resonate and they certainly don't hold sway over uh, their emotional experiences or their lived experience. I have a friend who's gay or I have these feelings or I struggle with this or that. And so we, we can read them the clear condemnation of homosexuality from scripture, which, which we should, they need to know dogmatically where the Bible stands on that. But what we haven't done, or at least didn't need to do in previous generations was really explain why this is really good news. These, these boundaries and these definitions that we see in, in scripture, why this is good news. And I think one of the things that would empower our apologetic and our teaching on these things would be uh, an appeal to the very things that God has given us access to in creation in the human body itself. And I remember I was having a, a, a discussion with a, um, a university student less than two weeks ago, and we were talking about homosexuality. And this is a person who's on board. They've been raised a Christian and they believe the biblical categories, but they're struggling because they don't know why God would prohibit that and why God would, would want to um, uh, deny uh, uh, these kinds of expressions of love and affection to the, to the, to the gay people that this university student knows. And so they're struggling. They want to hold to the biblical testimony on this. They just don't know. It seems to them that God is being arbitrary in his boundaries and in his definitions of human personhood and sexuality. And, and, and this is where I think we need to, to help them and, and, and make use of what, what God has written in his book of nature, so to speak. And, and, and in part, what I did with this young man was I, I took him to places where he obviously I knew he had never heard of any of the medical data, for instance, um, that is associated with um, promiscuity and homosexual promiscuity in, in particular. These were brand new things for him. I just took him, Googled some medical sites, and he was horrified at what he saw. And I said, now, the question is, who loves your homosexual neighbor more? the one that wants their body to be healthy so that it can flourish and so that he can live or the person that would say, continue to indulge things that your body is screaming to you is destroying it. There is an emotional appeal to that. I suspect that your experience is similar in, in terms of the kinds of conversations you're having to have and the kinds of instruction you're needing to give um, on, on some of these topics. Yeah, I think what you're pointing to there is the usefulness of, particularly for the rising generation, of demonstrating not only what the Bible says, but also that what the Bible says makes broader sense right. as well. I mean, times past when the culture 
for for good or for ill. I mean, the culture may have had some bigoted, homophobic, truly homophobic dimensions mm-hmm. to it. But when the culture tracked with what the Bible was teaching, there was very little pressure on Bible teachers to provide right. anything other than a verse or two from the Bible to present what would have culturally have counted as a plausible case for the position they were attempting to maintain. That's not the that's not the situation anymore. There's now a huge disconnection between what young people are receiving every day from the culture around them and what they're reading in scripture. And that means that the case for the scriptural case has to be made, I think, persuasively and in a more comprehensive fashion. And again, simply shouting Bible verses louder and louder uh, isn't going to cut it. Now, let me be clear what I'm saying here. You know, people are going to be emailing in, Truman's denying the sufficiency of Scripture. No, not at all. If the Bible says something, that's quite sufficient for demonstrating that that is the case. But when you're dealing with individual human beings who are wrestling with what the Bible says and why the Bible says it, subsidiary arguments can be extremely useful and extremely powerful and extremely helpful. And I would say this takes us into sort of two directions with natural law. I think, first of all, I would say natural law's primary usefulness at this point in time is within the church. Mm -hmm. As you alluded to earlier on, there is that voice of nature uh, within us all that has a moral sense, but that voice of nature can be terribly perverted and distorted right. by, by the fall. Yeah, and that was the concern of, say, the Vantilians or the Bartians, that we're not taking into account sufficiently the impact of the fall upon our moral senses. Right. Uh, but there is that voice of nature that I think can still work in the public mm-hmm. square. You can still make a case for not abusing children in the public square that will be persuasive without reference to the Bible. But there's still that vestige of the image of God that we right. all have. That and isn't that, what, isn't that what Paul is asserting in yeah. Romans too? That's precisely yeah. people without yeah. the law. In other words, people without a Bible, people without access to, to the special revelation of yeah. Scripture still know certain things. Yeah. Paul makes that point. The thief doesn't want to be a victim of thievery, even right. as he commits thefts. Right. But I do think the prior, as I saying, the primary purpose of, of natural law, the primary usefulness now is catechetically within the church, mm-hmm. providing a, a subsidiary arguments for the church's position. And secondly, I want to stress this is not independent of revelation. Right. You know, again, Truman is not asserting here, and Pruitt is not asserting that we have this separate strand of natural law. No, natural law uh, exists and works precisely because God has created this world in a way that connects to the being of God Himself, specifically right. human beings, were made in the image of God, and I think that needs. That's one of the points I think that. Uh, Matt Levering makes it uh, in his book, Biblical Natural Law. David Van Drunen has made this point that we're not arguing for an independent morality. We're arguing for a morality that is ultimately grounded in the being of things, and the being of things is ultimately grounded in the being on the revelation of God himself. So, you know, those things, one, primarily for the church, and two, it's not a replacement for the Bible. No. It's, it's an attempt to, to provide, one might say, biblically sanctioned natural exactly. law arguments for the explicit case that the Bible makes. And I'd have to confirm your impression, Todd, that you know, young people 
when I chat to them about these things and you say, well, I can show you the Bible verses where homosexuality is wrong, or, you know, I, I can point you to the fact that human beings are created with a bodily integrity such that, you know, I am, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body that, yeah. that, that makes no sense. You can take people to Bible verses, but at the back of their mind, there is that thought, is it because God is an arbitrary tyrant? Right. Is it because God wants to stop otherwise thoroughly decent people right. from being happy? And that's where I think these subsidiary arguments can help mm -hmm. because you know, actually it's the exact opposite. It's precisely because human flourishing and happiness has to have a certain moral right. shape yep. that the Bible speaks the way yep. it does. Yeah. And Bible believers should not only not be surprised, but they should expect that there is an integrity between what God clearly states in scripture and what we see working out in human experience. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, in this case in particular in within the human body um, and uh, whether it's healthy or whether it, it is um, damaged uh, because yeah. it's being used for things that God didn't design it for. Yeah. And I mean, to, without going into to sort of explicit and crude details, it's very clear that the, the male and the female body are made, uh, to be able to fit together robustly in certain ways and not in others. And the same applies for, for, for male, you know, the male body is not designed to be joined sexually mm -hmm. to another male body without significant yeah. risk of physical damage. Exactly. So there are, you know, what, what, you know, in the old days we'd have called this common sense. Right. Right. Now, unfortunately, common sense is regarded as, I don't know, a white heterosexual That's male right. construct. Imperialistic. So let's, let's talk about natural law. <laughs> uh, you, you know, let, let, and let's look at the, you know, let, let's follow the science. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that we should be uh, completely anticipating that, again, uh, there's, this, there's this strong relationship of integrity between what we see. Yeah. worked out in, in the natural world and, yeah. and that it's congruent with what God reveals in scripture. It was, I, I, I sent, I think, I think I texted you this picture the other day, but uh, Royal Dutch airlines, you know, has run this uh, picture of, of, of three uh, airplane seat belts lined up. So, so there's three different pairs it's of one belts. abomination that you failed to say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and in one, in, in, you know, one of the belts, the, you know, you might say the two female uh, belt parts are yeah. are lined up, and then the two male belt parts, and then and then the third one is well, the only way that a belt actually buckles. Yeah. and and they say, you know, it's it's Pride Month, and um, whatever you know, it's something like whatever makes you click, you know, works. And yeah, I'm going now. There is an irony there that is so deep. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. They undermined the very point they were trying to make, because as yeah. you look at the picture they provided to celebrate homosexuality, you go, only one of those three options actually works. Yeah. yeah. And when you go into a, an airplane owned by Royal Dutch Airlines and you try to make your air, uh, your, your seatbelt work in, in any other fashion than the only way it does work, they will correct you and make sure you're buckled correctly. Um, so it, it, it again, the, it, it was uh, an unintentional affirmation of what I would say is uh, Romans chapter two. They know even a seatbelt doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, it's designed to work only one way. 
well, you know, postmodernism works really well on literary texts. <laughs> it doesn't work so well when you're having brain surgery, when you're driving on yeah. the road, you know, mm -hmm. anything that actually matters in terms of survival. Right. Uh, postmodern relativism is dramatically limited in its usefulness. Right. Um, so I would add that sort of in terms of pedagogical strategy, as with a lot of these things, there's no need to use the term natural law. Right. When you, you teach people this, you know, because there's always going to be that person who's read somewhere that natural law is very, very bad. Right. Uh, you know, they've read a wiki, you know, the kind of person they've read a Wikipedia article, <laughs> makes them an expert, nothing you can do to can shift them. Yeah. Uh, I've always felt that uh, the best way to teach things like this is just to teach them. Right. You don't have to use the technical language. Yep. Most people actually think in natural law terms exactly. naturally anyway. Right even if they have a dozen Wikipedia-based objections to the term. So I would suggest to pastors, Sunday school teachers, just teach it. You know, if you're teaching on sexuality and you teach that the human body has a certain sexual structure to it, nobody's going to query that. Right. Nobody's going to query that. Exactly. So I would suggest that uh, you know, don't, don't create problems for yourself that you don't need to. <laughs> just teach the content. It's a little bit like persuading people that creeds and confessions are a good thing. Don't right. tell them you're teaching them creeds and confessions. Just teach them creeds and confessions, right. and they'll soon learn it's a good thing. <laughs> On the bigotry side, which is always the argument that's trotted out. Of course. Uh, you know, Sweden's a very useful country from that perspective, because Sweden <laughs> right. has a long history of being very affirming on a whole host yes. of things that the United States is only just getting into. Yeah. You can look at the statistics in Sweden. I mean, for example, suicides among tra right. people who've transitioned transgender-wise. They're not really any different to the United States. Mm -hmm. So the argument that the you know, U.S. suicide rates among transgender people are catastrophically high because society is not affirming simply doesn't work. Sweden is a great exactly. control. Yeah. Um, so we hope this has been a useful discussion. I do think that the pressing moral issues of the day require the church to draw on all of the historical resources that she has at her disposal. And while many of us can sympathize with the reason why natural law was uh, rejected in the 19th and 20th centuries, I think I would also want to add that it was rejected ultimately for, for reasons that don't quite hold water, and that actually a recovery of the great Christian tradition of natural law thinking um, will be a great benefit to the church at this point in time, to some extent in the public square, but more than anything else in catechizing, teaching our own people that the Bible says what it says about such things as sexual morality, because the Bible is actually reflecting the nature of reality itself at that point. There is a growing body of literature out there that is helpful on this subject. If you go to mortificationofspin.org, that's where you can enter for a chance to win a copy of David Van Drunen, friend of this program, professor at Westminster Seminary in California. David Van Drunen's uh, booklet, A Biblical Case for Natural Law, which is an excellent introduction to this topic. And I think one that uh, you will find very helpful as you think about how to integrate this with the pedagogical strategies, maybe in your own family or in your own church. And if you don't win a copy, please go to the Acton Institute's website and see how you might get hold of a copy. In the meantime, all that remains is for me to thank you for support of the podcast. Thank you for listening patiently today. And we look forward to being with you next week.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. There is a growing body of literature out there that is helpful on this subject. If you go to our website, mortificationofspin.com, or is it mortificationofspin.org? I think it's .org. Uh, is it org or com? <laughs> Somebody uh, org. help me It's org. Yeah. It's org. Okay. <laughs> Don't go to mortificationofspin.com. <laughs> That's a terrible, terrible organization. <laughs> Nothing to do with us whatsoever. Don't give them any money. Don't no. give them any money at all. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations.